Anthony, how good was this podcast with Joe Milios? It was amazing. Like, who would have thought that we'd be talking about bent penises for over an hour? Yeah, and I know we learned that. Uh, we learned some of it from Joe last time when our podcast kind of uh, did not work, did not. sadly. Uh, <laughs> but I was amazed to learn that it's just so much more prevalent um, than I'd ever expected. Like, you know, one in 10 men in the general population have Peroni's disease, which is a crooked penis. One in six if you have a radical prostatectomy. You know, that was that was just crazy. But, you know, it was really cool to hear about some of the things that um, we as healthcare providers and um, even just asking questions about things is easy to do. And um, I really loved how Joe said that, you know, those of us who are physios might have something in the cupboard that might be able to help these people. And it's evidence based. I thought that was really cool. It was, it was fantastic. So stay tuned, listen to this amazing podcast with Dr. Joe Milios from Perth in Western Australia and make sure that you share it with your friends and leave some comments in um, the discussion and let us know what you think. It's coming up right after the usual announcement. Welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. I'm Marika Hart from Herosphere. And I'm Anthony Lowe, the physio detective. Together, we interview leading authorities, answer questions, and share our thoughts to provide the general public with the best quality information we can find on all aspects of women's health. Please remember the materials and content on this podcast are intended as general information and for entertainment purposes only. They are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now it's time to get cracking with the episode, so whether you're out walking your dog, driving the kids to school, or just sitting back enjoying a glass of wine, we hope you enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Anthony Lowe, the Physio Detective, and it's my pleasure to uh, introduce to you who's on this podcast today. Of course, it is the lovely co-host, the wiser, smarter, everything better, Marika Hart, Always love uh, doing the podcast with you, and I know that it has been a little bit of time, but it's been um, a really full time, and I'm looking forward to diving in with our guest today. Um, how have you been, Marika? And um, I'll let you introduce Joe. Yeah, a bit like you, Anthony, pretty flat out in the last month, and um, a bit up and down, to be honest. Life has been kind of kicking me in the ass a bit. Um, hence, we haven't done a podcast for probably about four to six weeks. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a little while. Um, but lots of exciting things on the horizon, which we can talk about on another day. But uh, good things, good things coming ahead. Uh, look, today we are incredibly blessed to have Joe Milios. Sorry, Dr. Joe Milios. Um, I keep forgetting to add your title in there, Joe. Me too, don't worry. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> now, we actually had um, Joe on the podcast last year. We picked her brain for about an hour and a half. It was incredible. And then afterwards, when Anthony went to upload all the audio, eight minutes was on there. So there was some bug in our, in our Zoom thing and it was the most mortifying message I've ever had to send to the wonderful Joe to say, you're not gonna believe this, but the whole freaking thing has basically not been saved. And um, so thank you for not writing us off completely as being awful and unprofessional, Joe. We're so lucky to have you back on with more and more of your precious time. 
Um, so thank you for coming back. Uh, it's a complete honour and look, IT is interesting. We've all had to um, realise that we're physiotherapists, not IT experts. Um, and so the teething issues we're all experiencing is, um, is quite okay. So I'm, I'm just delighted that you have me back. So thanks, thanks to both of you. <laughs> and to be fair to Anthony, it was completely not his fault. It was some glitch with Zoom. So we, I, can't even, I can't even blame you, buddy. Um, now, uh, Dr. Joe Milios is a, a physiotherapist based in Perth, Western Australia. So I'm really lucky I can catch up and have coffee and ice cream with her from time to time um, and, and pick her brains. She works predominantly in the field of um, men's health, uh, men's pelvic health. And she has recently finished her PhD uh, where she had several projects, which I'm gonna, we're gonna ask her all about. Um, we've asked Joe to come on the podcast again because, you know, this is Prostate Cancer Month. And um, even though Anthony and I have, I mean, this is the Women's Health Podcast and we've predominantly been talking about topics related to women's health. Um, we really wanted Joe to come on and talk about men's pelvic health because we also, you know, we really, we think this is such an important, um, I mean, it's a huge topic we could talk about for days, um, but it's something that she has so much expertise in and we all have brothers fathers, um, friends who are male who, um, you know, we, we just want to make sure that this information is available out there and people know of Dr. Joe and her podcast so they can learn more. Um, but before we go into sort of the question stuff, Joe, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do and um, what you have been doing over the last, was it eight years? Yeah, well, um, thanks so much for that introduction. Uh, so I'll go back, spin back a little bit. So uh, I started off life wanting to be a classical ballerina. And unfortunately, um, as uh, you might have seen if you've done any presentations, I do have a quite a, a nasty uh, scoliosis. I'm just going to put it up on the screen there. You might be able to see my, my 53 degree uh, thoracic spinal curve. Um, well, I didn't end up being able to have that ballet career. So physiotherapy seemed like a really nice thing to do. I say I pirouetted a different way. Uh, physiotherapy was something that was a little challenging for me. Uh, scientifically, statistics, I think I got 51% in my um, you know, final exams. But, but the creative um, aspect of physiotherapy has really come to the fore with me now in um, the men's health space. And that all started really through contact, um, a phone call actually just from my brother who's a urologist in Western Australia. That was 2005, um, speed dial to 2020. I was really encouraged by local urologists in Western Australia to, to put a lot of the um, clinical uh, work I was observing into something more formal. In 2012, I commenced a high degree by research at the University of Western Australia. Purely and simply, I wanted to investigate exercise and pelvic floor and think about developing a program for men with prostate cancer to implement that into the community to improve the everyday quality of life of men, um, particularly focusing on whole body exercise training as well as pelvic floor, but particularly the sexual function. I found that the continence aspect of men, particularly with prostate cancer, was being very well addressed in the women's health field, um, but that sexual dysfunction was not being talked about, not even with the urologists and long-term through my own sort of preparation by bringing in a lengthy prehabilitation time um, between diagnosis and surgery for the prostate cancer patients I was working with, but we found it was really quite um, easy in most cases to regain continence, but then the sexual dysfunction was a major issue. So 
uh, my PhD focused on. I've got my PhD here. Um, I'll read the title, a therapeutic, sorry, therapeutic interventions for patients with prostate cancer undergoing radical prostatectomy, a focus on urinary incontinence, erectile dysfunction, and Peyronie's disease. I'll also let you know that halfway through my PhD, so I was working full-time and doing this part-time and in about 2015, I had a bit of a, a crash of confidence after going to a few conferences and getting quite a lot of uh, sort of tardy responses. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm gonna put this PhD away. And I decided just to go and pursue a bit of creativity and became a yoga teacher. because That had always helped me for my spine. And I've actually found that's been the greatest asset to my PhD because now I have a much better understanding of whole body health and the relaxation components for myself as well. So um, I only, only put that PhD aside for two months, but picked it up again. So in total, it was seven years of part-time study. And I just used to say it was my hobby. So I just plug away um, while my family are watching the Frio Dockers. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's a long enough introduction. <laughs> Finally graduated just in December, 2019. Congratulations, Joe. Um, so much there to love. And of course, the one thing that really irked me was right at the end, go the Sydney Swans forever. Um, <laughs> I know Marika's a Frio fan as well. Oh, Marika, can I just put a plug to Fiona Rogers? Because she bought me this cup that I'm wearing when she came to Rottnest for a day uh, last, last year to Perth. We had a day at Rottnest together and she bought me this cup at the Rottnest um, fairy stand and she goes to the Brisbane Lions so it's a bit of banter there so <laughs> <laughs> that's okay and at least you're not a West Coast fan so I suppose there's always that yep. Greece. <laughs> I have to pretend a lot though <laughs> well uh, so do I Joe. you know where I work <laughs> oh you do <laughs> I actually rang you the other day I was trying to get to the doctors to tell them about the shockwave machine I've got and I accidentally rang you guys and I put up the phone <laughs> I was like, oh, I want the machine at the dockers. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Sorry, I've called the wrong club. <laughs> good, all good. All right. Um, so once we got the football out of the way. Um, so, you know, it's really interesting that you talk about, um, you know, the fact that your brother's a urologist and, you know, the role that physio can play, uh, the sexual dysfunction, the incontinence, as well as the... Um, Peroni's disease. Do you want to mm. uh, briefly touch on what Peroni's disease is and, and why is this important, please? Sure. Well, a Peroni's disease is a curvature or deformity of the penis. And I certainly didn't ever anticipate to investigate that in my PhD, but um, I came about um, knowing about it because one of my patients, who was a much younger patient, he was 45 years of age when in 2014, he underwent a radical robotic prostatectomy. So he had a complete recovery of his um, cancer, his consonants within about four weeks. And when I discharged him at six months, because I like to just make sure that between three and six months, they don't go into a psychological dip. So even if they're consonant at three months, I say, I'll check in with you at six months. Because um, if they haven't got their sexual function going, a lot of men really start to drop their bundle a bit away from that sort of early intensive time. So this um, chap came to see me at six months, three months between visits. He was um, doing really well. He had a spontaneous um, erectile blood flow emerging and I was pretty happy with that. And anyway, I got a knock at the door of my physio clinic about six months after that. He was very distressed and asked if I'd chat to him for a minute. Um, 
I brought him straight in because I saw he was really struggling there. And he produced a photo of a very bent and um, curved penis that was deviated 75 degrees upward to the left. And he said he felt a hard lump that was painful and he was petrified that his prostate cancer had returned into his penis. I quickly reassured him that it was likely not to be cancer because I was aware of Peronius disease. Um, startlingly, I made the observation that one in six men who undergo a radical prostatectomy will experience Peronius disease um, if we don't do something called penile rehabilitation. Penile rehabilitation is what I was talking about earlier. It means um, getting men to work on their sexual function recovery from day dot, which includes pelvic floor exercises, as I was able to show in my own research, built on the work of Professor Grace Dory. We know um, that Peronius disease can occur in one in 10 men um, away from prostate cancer treatment. We know that there are many reasons. There can be, I've got three young patients at the moment who have experienced a coital fracture. So they've been having sex with their girlfriends. One of them is 17, one of them is 19, and one of them is 31. Um, they're the typical sort of patients. They come in very distressed, bruising, pain in their penis, a deviation, unable to have sex. Um, one man said to me, what use am I as a man with a broken weapon? Uh, penile function, penile length, uh, impact greatly on a man's masculinity. And this, this is something that I felt needed to be discussed. Uh, it became the one third uh, unexpected chapter of uh, part of my PhD with a random control trial utilizing therapeutic ultrasounds. And we can talk more about that, but Perennis disease doesn't just mean bend, it means any change to penile function and it can occur at any age group. Um, my youngest patient's been 15 and my oldest has been 85. So I think it's a really important um, topic. One of the main reasons I've set up my own podcast recently called The Penis Project and All Things P and Men's Health because it's the depression and anxiety that comes as a squally when when young people don't have sexual function. Older men tend to cope a bit better, but I've got even one patient who's never married, never fathered, and he's 54 from a coital fracture at 21. So we're talking about whole lifetime impacts here. It's important to chat about. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. I can imagine that would affect quality of life uh, to a huge degree. Um, we're going to come back to the, the treatment side of things because I think that'll be fantastic for you to cover because um, it sounds like as traditionally that no I'll come back to that <laughs> I'll come back to that I just wanted to ask um if you wouldn't mind just quickly going through um why people after a radical prostatectomy have um difficulties with incontinence and sexual function if you just quickly can talk a little bit sure. about some anatomical um changes that'd be great so I like to let first of all guys know well I always do a number of ways um just the other day I had a blind patient and his blind wife so I had no tools whatsoever no no screens, no ultrasounds, um, nothing to show him visually. Um, it was just talk and touch. So what men need to first of all know is they do have a pelvic floor. Most of them anticipate when they get told to go and see a physio, they're going to um, get on the floor and do a few push-ups and maybe some sit-ups and things, and that's their floor exercises. So it's important to understand that the pelvic floor is a uh, essential piece of male anatomy as well as female. It's in the same body part in the perineal area between the coccyx at the, at the back 
and the pubic bone at the front. And it's the three-layered hammock, basically, that controls our bowel, bladder and sexual function. Well, it has a role in it. And then we have the prostate, which sits um, just beneath the bladder, which has its own sphincter, which is called the internal bladder neck sphincter. And the bladder and the prostate automatically work together to uh, help control storage and elimination of urine. So when a man has prostate cancer and needs to have it removed, then he's going to lose his autonomic bladder control support mechanism. The problem is that the pelvic floor for a man is unaccustomed to the, the load that it's going to require because it loses about, the support is about four fifths of what is required gone. So you have the, the prostate embedded at the base of the bladder, the, that's then removed. The base of the bladder in the sphincter is stitched into the internal urethral sphincter. That then has to survive um, Copes really well when guys are supine or sitting still, but once they get upright and start moving, it's a whole different ball game. And um, what we know is if we do pelvic floor exercises in standing, right from day dot, I do all my assessments and training programs as I was able to show in my PhD in standing from the outset to get men training with load into maximum um, physiological uh, requirement based on male anatomy and male and pelvic floor physiology. Another reason I work with exercise physiologists to do my PhD in the first place, because you know it was just in information that we didn't have a lot of in, in physiotherapy schools, in my experience. What is good to know though, is if you activate the pelvic floor for your urinary function, you're also activating it for erectile function. So I tell my patients the two for one bonus. As soon as you tell a bloke that he's gonna lose his penile length, um, as a result of surgery because of the lack of blood flow. So the nerves that wrap around the prostate are responsible for a male uh, innovation of that blood flow. So his penis won't uh, grow, won't lengthen, and that will impact on the girth as well as the length. And, and well, look, put it this way, penile length is the most looked up internet topic of all search engine topics. So we know it's on guys' minds, but we know that there can be a spiral of... Uh, yeah, somewhat challenging websites and information sources. So um, we want we want guys to know a they have a pelvic floor that it's a simple uh, approach of just squeezing the front passage, drawing up their testes, drawing the penis in, or as I say, lifting their nuts to their guts to get that opportunity to work on urinary, sexual, and also bowel function. It's it's a no-brainer. Just they just need to know they have one. Right. So um, there's, you just dropped a whole ton of knowledge there. Um, so lots of different things that I just heard you say, uh, things like uh, the, the interesting thing was the fourth fifths of the support was gone after a radical prostatectomy. So the support mm. from the prostate actually being there in the base of the bladder provides a lot of support and that's taken away. And then, you know, the blood flow issues, the nerve issues, um and then you know you started talking about penile length and girth um and and i wanted to make a joke like when you yeah, said, you know there's there's you said it in a very polite way about you know information on the internet and i and i was going to unmute and say so do you mean porn sites are not indicative of normal penile length and girth <laughs> but well that yeah. is a lot of <laughs> what guys are judging things off 
Um, Anthony, it's, you know, it's such a good question because we have a colleague in the UK, Jared Green and a number of others, Carl Monaghan and Bill Taylor and um, Adrian Wagstaff and um, a few others. They're all really aware of something called hard flaccid syndrome, which is occurring in young men between about 18 and 35. It's a lot linked to um, watching pornography, um, particularly in COVID times, people are spending a lot more time at home and they're doing something called jelking. They're actually vigorously stimulating them so much that we're getting penile injuries. This can lead to Peyronie's disease. But hard flaccid syndrome, which is like the female equivalent potentially of um, persistent genital arousal disorder, where you've got this constant sort of um, blood flow arousal that is not normalising because they've got hypertonicity in their pelvic floor or um, you know they've got a hypersensitivity from injury so again that's a quality of depression anxiety and not knowing what to do and where to go to get help so yeah it, it's penile length the this search for perfection unbelievably there's something called small penis anxiety so when I've done research on men who believe they have this, their partners have been interviewed and 85% of the time say they have not a problem with their partner's penile length. And yet men have this true psychological disorder uh, arising from their fears around it. So it's pretty hard in an Instagram-y, Snapchat, um, social media presence for young people to know what's normal. Yeah. And that's it's one of the things that, oh, sorry, Anthony, were you gonna say something? And I was just thinking about the penile length, Joe, because um, I've started working with men over the last year um, post prostatectomy, which I have to say I've really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, just love working with the blokes. Um, but the with the penile rehab, what, what I've found sometimes is that because of the, the cancer is a big deal, right? Yeah. The cancer is massive. So in that process, when they're processing all of this information, dealing with the incontinence because often when they come out, they're literally just like a tap running, right? Yep. For that first period of time. And then it, that improves at nighttime and then it gets better in the morning and then it got, they yep. often go through the process. Just, just in building up endurance in the muscles. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when I ask them about their penile rehab, because they often see your colleague, um, Melissa, Melissa who, yep. who we'll, we will definitely talk about in a minute. Um, sometimes what I'm finding is, is that they'll just say to me, oh, look, I, I'm not interested in sex. It's just not on my radar yep. right now. And then mm. I'm having to sort of, and I'm sure it was explained to them earlier on, but explained to them it's not just about wanting to have sex right now, but we want to mm. actually maintain that blood flow, maintain that length. And then when they mm. start, when you start talking about length, then it's like, oh, yep. shit, I better yep. start getting onto this because that's a real fear. Yeah, I'm so glad that you've noticed that. And um, first of all, I want to say men are just the most wonderful in this cohort patients I've ever worked with because they're so motivated. They've got cancer which freaks them out. Usually they're asymptomatic when they get diagnosed. It's just a blood test that's gone a bit awry. So they get told, yep, go along, have your surgery, but you're going to be clear to cancer, but you're going to be impotent and incontinent. And literally, and I don't mean to be rude at all, Anthony, but just about every guy says to me, I can only deal with one thing at a time. And when I heard that word cancer in the waiting room or from my doctor, I didn't hear anything else. So the they're, they're fixated initially on I've got cancer and then I want to have 24-hour bladder control because men are not used to losing control of their bodily fluids. So those two quality of life things, in fact, the survivorship, number one, we always say is important to rank. Prostate cancer clearance, continence, 
and then sexual function is going to take a lot longer. We, even the best studies that we have um, from a guy called Nelson and his um, 2013 study, Chris Nelson, show that only 22% of men will regain their sexual function at two years post prostatectomy. So that was my motivation for my, my studies into this body part as well. So you'll find, yep, men will want to go cancer, their education, they can deal with that. And then I actually say from day dot, I'm going to be asking you about your sexual function and any consult hereafter, please feel free to answer a question. Ask a question, should I say? Um, I say there's two physical side effects from this surgery and I'm a physical therapist and I want to acknowledge both. They're long term, you're getting back to quality life and being you, your normal you, needs to also address the masculinity side of it. But then I also make sure that we're talking about function versus sex. And once you start talking about function, normal appearance, normal length, it takes a lot of pressure, that performance, anxiety and reluctance to embarrass themselves in front of their partners or even have to confront it away. And that's why I do the continuing um, observation of men because even if they're continent, down the track, if they've missed their window in the first six months to work on their sexual function, they've got penile atrophy, potentially Peyronie's disease, and then it's a whole different story. And so, oh, we've got a friend. Um, <laughs> my dog Apollo's just decided to come sit with me. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could hear him crunching that in the background. Um, so I'll move him away in a second. We, we do want to have an open and respectful conversation, but we don't want to put pressure on guys that it's about sex. It's going to take a couple of years mostly to get their nerve recovery. But we say if you don't use it, you'll lose it. And my, my whole desire for doing that Peroni's extra random control trial was to educate, 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 and minimise guys going through what um, my younger patient Phil went through. Who's the, um, yeah, inspiration? I'll also add that six years later from the ultrasound therapy, he's uh, perfectly fine and he has about a 10 degree lingering curve. We just did a shockwave when I'm in the other day and uh, he reported back that it was completely incredible and I can't wait to share more of that. <laughs> It's great news. Um, and you know, some of the best research ideas um, come from our interactions with with the people who see us. So um, it's, it's great to hear how that inspiration and the research and, you know, 22% regaining their sexual function by two years, all of these things. And, um, and it's interesting that you you mentioned, um, you know, cancer being the big thing. And then after that, not not being able to hear anything else, like mm. that, that's a common story, no matter, no matter who you are and what type of cancer that is. Um, it's difficult to hear everything else after that. Um, but what I find interesting is that there is so much of a focus after the operation, after the prostatectomy of, okay, you know, you're, you're basically leaking like a tap that's been left on at the moment. And there's that focus to incontinence and the pelvic floor work. And um, there definitely doesn't seem to be as much of a focus on the sexual function, particularly if it takes a couple of years for it to come back. So um, 
That's definitely. So this is, yeah, this is the, th the thing, like that's when the coin dropped for me when I saw that slide at a prostate cancer conference in 2014. I knew that this was being under addressed, but I didn't know the stats were that bad. And if you actually break it down for anyone over 60, if they don't do penile rehabilitation, they've got a 4% chance of getting their function back at two years if they're over 60. Now the average man in Australia and probably globally is about 62, 63. And older people do have sex still and it's a really important part of their masculinity as I said earlier. Um, yeah, for me it was a driver. I've come to realise probably that man to man talking across a table about penile function as in a urology office is not a, a pleasant or comfortable conversation for both men in the room. I actually over my 15 years have had three urologists write letters to me formally requesting me not to discuss penile function with their patients. And I've said, well, I'm very happy to do that if, if you're happy to discuss it. Um, one, one surgeon didn't refer me patients for six years because of that particular response that I gave him. The other two were fine. Um, said, please go for it. We understand that you're helping. And now that surgeon, you know, now that my work's published, he's come back and started referring again. So it's, it's um, an uncomfortable topic. Peter Dornan taught me many years ago as my men's health mentor that pudendal nerve is the nerve of the private parts and S234 travels on the inside of the body. We don't really have very good MRI imaging, even knowledge to be able to see it. That men aren't going to talk about their private parts public and certainly not amongst their mates when it comes to something serious. There'll be a bit of banter and humour, but at the end of the day, it's just not going to be a, a topic they want to talk about across the table to one another. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it is it is a difficult topic, like you said. Um, what's really interesting about what you said was that um, even the surgeons, even the surgeons, like I'm surprised, I'm still sitting here surprised that a surgeon was upset that you were discussing this with people um, and upset with your response. Okay, you talk to them about it. Like that's, well, that's only because they were asking me the questions as well, Anthony. Like of I'd say, they'd say, now you've fixed up my continents. What can we do about my sexual function? And I'd say, oh, this goes back to 2005. What, what's your surgeon talk, discussing? Oh, no, that hasn't been mentioned. I'm so glad things have improved a lot in this time. But if we think about it, Australia is actually a long, long, long way ahead here. We have had the first men's health courses with uh, Pauline Chiarelli. We have had people like Craig Allingham and Peter Dornan talking about it, being active in prostate cancer forums and community workshops for 20 plus years. We've got a voice from men in Australia in the field. We've actually probably not globally got that going so much because it, pelvic health has predominantly been a female area and even myself you know I was being very challenged because I didn't do women's health training uh, here at Curtin University as a postgrad but that's because at the time there was neither a course nor any men's health content anyway so um, from a musculoskeletal background I literally just followed my brother around and learned from the patients and then I would get referrals from him that say basically Joe I don't know what's going on. I don't, I can't find anything. We've done STD checks. This man's got pain. Um, we've given him antibiotics. He's got prostatitis, but only 3% of guys get better if they have prostatitis with antibiotics. And it turned out to be the opposite of what I was doing for um, the prostate cancer patients that needed strengthening. This body of patients needed relaxation 
and movement of their pelvic floor, by which time it had escalated to, you know, a range of musculoskeletal, whole body pain, anxiety, depression, bowel, bladder, sexual function. The, the education space has been so lacking for men. And um, the familiar thing to me, or the reassuring thing to me is, it's a familiar story. So no matter what country I've had the opportunity to teach in, in the last five or six years, there's the same statistics. Men live five years on average less than women. Men lead in all the adverse health conditions, including things like suicide. 80% of all suicides are, are performed by men and that's one man per minute globally. Men aren't so good at preventative health or asking for help, they're, they're reluctant. And there's lots of cultural reasons for that, but I'm really inspired by younger patients. That The most recent patient with Peroni's disease who was 19, came with his mother to the appointment. And I was really taken aback. And I said, oh, lovely to meet you both. It was 6.30 on a Saturday morning. What would you like to do? Would you both like to come in? And the young guy said, yep, I want my mum there because she's helped me get to this point. She walks in and she said, my son's got, we know he's got disease. We've been sent to you from the GP who's aware of your research. Um, he, I'm just worried about his headspace and I'm going to just have a chat here and then I'll leave the room while you examine him. And I actually, I'm doing it now again. I, I actually was so overwhelmed because here we're changing things. We're getting younger men talking to their mum and sharing this. And this is where education, I, I feel really hopeful that we're going to reduce a lot of these um, chronic disorders if we can. Um, yeah, it's, it's really motivating. I think uh, that's something that I was chatting to some friends about the other day. Um, oh, I know what we're talking about. We we're talking about concussions. And I said, is there much of a difference between men and women in terms of, you know, um, outcomes, et cetera, and how they present? And there were some little things, but um, this physio that I work with was telling me that because women tend to present to their GP with issues um, far more often, that's why, um, <clears throat> excuse me, they, they do tend to get diagnosed more. They do tend to get more follow-up care, et cetera. Um, because a lot of guys, when they have an injury, will kind of uh, toughen it, um, yeah. toughen up, push on, not tell anyone, um, and and not seek help as much as as women do tend to do. Um, Joe, while we're talking about peronies, because I want to come back to the the treatment side of things. So I remember in that amazing podcast that we did that totally <laughs> vanished, got lost in cyberspace. It's going to appear one day. I'm sure it will. <laughs> Karma. Karma's going to come back. Oh, <laughs> um, you talked to us about that. So, so when you started off your PhD, you were going down one track and then this yeah. um, Peroni's disease. bend in the road that I had, yes. <laughs> bend in the road, exactly. Yep. Um, and I remember you were saying that at the time you thought, shit, what do I do, what do, I do here? I, I want to help this kid, but I, I, yeah. I don't know what tools I have. And that you, I think you spoke to Sandy Hilton, is that right? Yes, I and did. Then, obscure little things in the literature, but there wasn't much information out there. Um, do you want to tell us, share that little story again about yeah, how- Yeah, sure. So, so this guy so. presents to me in uh, November of 2014, and my husband's Greek, and he's also a physio dean. And we were going to visit his Greek family um, for, in Chicago. And because of the Facebook groups that we have, the women's health groups and the men's health one that um, I set up a few years ago, I had uh, awareness that there was two physios who were very, um, interactive Sandy Hilton and uh, Sarah Hogg and just through Facebook Messenger as we've done even today between us um, 
connected with Sandy to go out for dinner and Sarah. So they took me out for dinner, went to a saloon, had, you know, uh, ribs, I think, and barbecue ribs, like a massive meal, as you do. And I said, hey, guys, great to meet you, blah, 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 blah. We talked about everything. And I said, look, I've just come across this one case that's really intrigued me. Have you guys ever heard of Peroni's disease in the physio clinic? And Sandy was like, actually, I used to work in the defence forces and way back in whatever, 20 years ago, we had three or four young guys come in with injuries and we just provide everyday therapeutic ultrasound and very quickly they resolve their pain, uh, their swelling, bruising to the area from physical trauma. Um, but also we were able to greatly improve or minimise the impact of the curvature. She said, we just devised this little thing where we would do five days a week ultrasound, which was um, then backed up by three weeks, of, sorry, five days in week one, five days in a row. Week two was three days every third, every second day. Week two was two sessions and then the final week was one. So there was 11 sessions over a month. So he said it looked pretty good, but it was just, you know, anecdotal. We didn't really do much with that. And I got me thinking, so because I was a little bit familiar with looking into um, all the, you know, academic uh, papers with a bit more skill, I uncovered that there was a paper in 1983 by a Dr. Miller, a urologist who's done a clinical case study series where he'd actually used therapeutic ultrasound and he had a collection of 26 patients and 19 of them reported improvements. So reduction of curve, reduction of the lump, reduction of pain and re-engagement in sexual activity. So pretty positive. Fortunately, because I got access to his paper, I could see that there was another three papers that he'd drawn a body of work from. But I couldn't get those ones because they were from 1951, 1967 and 1971. And then through UWA, the librarians very helpful, they tracked them all down. And then I had this body of work spanning about, I haven't actually added them up, but we'd say a thousand, maybe 1200 case study series that had shown about 70% improvement across the board with all of those parameters. But 2015, a lot obviously later, um, from 1983, 32 years, I think, um, well, nothing had been done. And why? I don't know, technology, different medications. I'm sure people recognize it's a very confounding condition to treat. So they can do injections into the area called collagenose injections, a whole range of things. But there's only about a 30% benefit across all of these things. And even surgery to fix it can be done. But the general rule is let's wait and see because there's an acute phase of this condition and it takes 18 months to stabilise. This Peroni's disease will occur in what they call um, aberrant wound healing in genetically susceptible individuals. So a lot of these guys have something called Dupuytren's contracture, which is in the fourth and fifth digit. You'll probably be aware of those tendon curling of the fingers, something called lederhosen's, which is a little lump of fibromatosis in the plantar fascia and a whole range of other things, but there is a genetic link. And so we really wanted to just identify how we could treat it. I pretty much fumbled my way through all those papers, worked out a protocol loosely based on Sandy's. I just decided to do three sessions a week for 12 weeks. By this time we had a penile Doppler scan um, imaging available. We our first patient's name was Phil. He doesn't mind sharing his story at all. We, we scanned him, found some plaque. I proceeded to do the 12 ultrasounds using continuous ultrasound on a three megahertz dose high intensity 
two watts per centimetre squared. We did that for 10 minutes, three times a week for four weeks. We rescanned him and there was complete resolution of his Peroni's plaque. And there was this mini foci calcifications that also were completely resolved. The sonographer and radiographer called me in and said, Joe, we've never seen this before in 25 years of scanning. What have you done? You're on to something. We're going to send every man with Peroni's disease your way. Currently, patients are told to wait and see. 88% of the time I uncovered these conditions either get worse or stabilise. We know more than 50% of men with Peroni's disease have clinical depression. And here we go again. Um, then went back to my supervisors. They actually said, Joe, we're not real keen on looking at um, penises. Because guess what? They were two guys, Professor Danny Green and Tim Acklin. They didn't want to have this discussion. So they said, nick off and go and do these three or four more cases and come back to us if you find any consistent thing. Because one case study ain't going to cut it, Joe. So they're pretty tough on me, but I'm glad they, they were because I got the same results. And then we did the random control trial. And da da da, it only got published on the 8th of the 8th, 2020, finally. Peroni's disease and the role of therapeutic ultrasound a randomized control trial on the Journal of Rehabilitation Therapy. Six years of work, that one. <laughs> That's so awesome, Joe. The, um, <clears throat> the, the journey to getting stuff like that out and, and the, the video was not on my face at the time, but like, I, I don't know if you saw, but my eyes widened and I was a bit surprised as such a high therapeutic ultrasound dose, you know, like I tend to get, I, I tend to get burning sensations, anything above 0.5 watts per centimeter squared. So, um, um, yeah, you have to be, it has to be very individualized. And the thing with the random control trial is I was basing this on the, the body of your work from those urologists. So I initially started off with one megahertz, but mm. that was too painful. So it shifted to three megahertz. Um, but 70% of men and also in my trial, in the results improved on all those parameters. And I recently just did a presentation just, just last week actually, for a company who've got a focal shockwave therapy machine because they approached me at the end of my presentation at the Australian Physiotherapy Transform course in October last year to say, Joe, those 30% of patients that aren't, aren't getting better, why is that? And I said, because they've got calcification, they ultrasound is not gonna penetrate that, it's gonna be painful. Um, but what it does is it, it helps reduce the likelihood of that chronicity, the plaques getting bigger. We, we treat it like a soft tissue injury acutely and, um, you know, individual personalised, yes, we do have to address this, but alternatively, the shockwave, the focal shockwave is far more painful. So I find a combination now of three or four ultrasound sessions to decrease that initial inflammatory process um, also encourages the guys to feel more comfortable with that very personal and private application of the ultrasound, but it's very well tolerated. And a bit like mastitis, I spoke to Professor uh, Peter Hamer when I first started talking about this and he said, Joe, ultrasound works really well. Every physio has got one in their cupboard. It's just that it's very specific. You know, if you get the right condition and the right parameters, there's no reason why it can't actually have a role for sure. Cause I, I said, you know, ultrasounds cut so much flack in recent years and he was like, yeah, but we use it in mastitis. And he was the head of um, Notre Dame at the time and I'm really quite grateful for that one conversation actually, because yeah, you know, trying to convince people that ultrasound had a role has been challenging, but 
I'm really delighted with the shockwave actually. I, I think we've got potential to have a huge role across the world globally in starting off the ultrasound, but potentially having a specific kill working with urologist um, providing a shockwave because it is a bit time consuming. That's a 20 minute treatment and urologists are probably not going to want to stand there and do that. And Apollo, sorry, my dog's barking. Sorry. Come on. Um, keeping it real here, everyone. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. I was going to... Okay, I'll, I lost my train of thought. That's okay. I'll give you another train to jump aboard. Um, you know, like, it's almost like science, right? Like, I know that therapeutic ultrasound for a lot of the things that we thought were helpful wasn't helpful for the reasons that we thought, but we all have memories of, uh, you know, seeing people who responded miraculously to it. Um, yeah. And it's almost like, hey, there's still a role for therapeutic ultrasound. We've just got to more clearly define what what is suitable and not suitable. Yeah. You know, you spoke about mastitis and um, you've spoken about Peroni's disease. You spoke about the calcification. Is there any way of preventing the calcification? Is it is it the wait and see approach that's leading to calcification? Absolutely. So currently, if you get diagnosed with Peroni's disease, you'll be told from your GP, come back in six months, but there's nothing we can do. There are medications, but they don't work better than placebo. You can have penile injections. They're going to cost you about $1,200 each, but you need six to 10 of them and they're not on the PBS list anymore because they don't work or they cause more bruising. Um, you can have surgery, but you've got to wait two years. Because if we do um, surgery too soon, then you can cause even more scarring in genetically susceptible individuals. And my brother, who actually, I didn't even realise, specialises in correcting surgery for this as well. We only, only found out he specialised in it uh, halfway through my own research on it because I opened up a urology journal and he was discussing it. Um, so we have a nice pathway. I've watched him do a couple of surgeries now and the surgery is very effective but we don't want patients to get to that point if possible because he's even said, I've learned the hard way of jumping in too soon because these patients are usually very paranoid and distressed and want it fixed now. And uh, the problem is if you have this calcification and I believe that the ultrasound can minimise this because I've actually not had anyone get worse while I've been doing the treatment. Um, apart from one patient actually who had small cell lung carcinoma and was on heavy, heavy drugs that were affecting his kidney and a whole cleansing thing actually but everyone else is either stabilized got better and even in those guys who had the calcification that didn't respond to ultrasound all of them had pain reduction usually within three sessions and all of them had a dexterity and improvement in the softer tissues so the goal is let's use physiotherapy ultrasound that every physio has in his cupboard globally if we get the chance we don't want patients to have to wait two years if they have surgery because it's calcification beyond that time they're going to get penile length reduction. There's going to be affectations to the dorsal penile nerve. That's going to impact on erectile function anyway. And even surgeons are reluctant to do this. And they'll say, wait and see for up to two years. No man wants to wait and see and feel their penis shrinking, bending, getting worse. Then they end up like that patient of mine who's never fathered or married or had a, he's a virgin still. So, Joe, just coming back, you said early on, in terms of the statistics with this, it was about one in six for men who... Alphabetical prostatectomy. And one in it's ten... It's all evidence-based. Yep. 
we're talking huge numbers then if we're, we're talking, talking one in numbers. ten general population and this is the most the most interesting thing is there's only 30 percent roughly known history in any of these guys known there's history as kind of injury or surgery yep. or something trigger okay there's a massive undisclosed unfounded population and i believe it's pelvic floor hypersimicity based on a really my favorite paper of all times is by a lady called debbie cohen um she wrote it in 2016 and it's the sexual the role of pelvic floor uh, muscles in male pelvic, male sexual dysfunction and she talks about the pudendal internal pudendal arteries being compressed in pelvic floor hypertonicity which then compresses on penile blood flow which then over time leads to reduced filling of the chambers of the corpus cavernosa, which then leads to this fibrosis effect. And actually, you asked me that question earlier, Marika, and I didn't quite answer it properly. The men who have radical prostatectomies, or even any man with this pelvic floor hypertonicity, they should be getting normal, full erections while they're sleeping, called nocturnal erections, six to eight times a night. Now, if they don't get that happening because of nerve injury or compromised blood flow, they will end up with this penile tissue atrophy, apoptosis or cell death, shrinkage, and over time, this laying down of, um, you know, deposits, scar tissue, collagen, and inflexible penises that then become rigid. And it's only seen in, in erection. So you don't see it when men are at resting time. And so if men take one to two years to get their nerve function back right, they don't even know until it starts waking up and it's bent. And then, they, then they're like, now what, you know? Geez, I've been through cancer, I've been through incontinence and things are working and now what have I got? That was, that was a real story. So just to jump in on there, the wait and see approach is a problem because it allows a classification to take hold, which makes everything harder to deal yep. with. Yep. Not intended. Um, and then you have, um, the inability inability to tell like as a patient that it's there because yep. you can only tell during an erection yep you have you know the nerve supply knocked off in surgery like it usually does it takes up to two years yep. back so at least two years in many cases yeah so is the goal like how can you tell before they get nerve function back uh that yeah so they start to notice this is where self-scanning self-awareness my yoga comes into it now we go we want we want guys to know what's normal for them we want them to play with themselves as boys do anyway in the shower maybe once a month just like girls do with their breast check just check feel their testes feel their penis notice if any lumps and bumps be aware of any pain or change be aware of any minor indentation or changes to erectile function we also know there's a huge amount of guys with Crohn's disease who have cardiovascular disorders. So they've got a three year window of noticing changes in their penile function or feeling or sensation or shape before they might get a heart, have a heart attack. We actually lost one of our patients on our trial through having a massive heart attack because of his unknown cardiovascular disease linked to his Peronis. So, um, you know, education again, boys don't have monthly menstrual cycles so they don't really know when things change from one month to the next that's part of the problem why they're probably not so great at um, picking these things up because it's slow it's a slow slow thing 
for things to change. Right. And right. So definitely got to pay attention in the shower, um, yeah. you know, and I think the first of every month would be something we could get guys doing. Like, why not just talk about it, share it. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep. Sounds good. Uh, I did have a question. Um, so, you know, checking for it. And so you mentioned slight indentations, basically anything that's a little bit different to usual yeah. and, you know, in the people that you've seen, so we're, we're talking about general population there, but yeah. like in the yeah. people you've seen after a prostatectomy, um, you know, they're getting over cancer, they might have had to have chemotherapy, radiotherapy as yeah. well, depending on the yeah. state, things like that. Um, so noticing these subtle changes are still important and should be part yeah. of the conversation that people have. Uh, there seems to be a genetic component to it. Um, mm -hmm. So they've had Dupuytren's contracture or the yeah. lactosin, um, yeah. I can't remember, effect. I wanted to say lederhosen effect, but... Uh, lederhosen. Yeah, that, that's quite rare, but I have got one patient with all three, Dupuytren's, Peroni's, and... I ask about that, like... So then if they're prone to developing like tissue yep. hardens and shortens, mm -hmm. uh, would then, is that like a, an indication for surgery then even that they may have adverse effects from surgery or anything? You mean, you mean for prostate cancer surgery or any surgery? Uh, any, well, any surgery for the, for the Peroni's uh, disease. Oh yeah, absolutely. That, that's why, that's why surgeons wait and see. What we want to do is not get them to the chronic calcified stage, which ultrasound actually was able to do. Um, it wasn't, once we got to calcification, the ultrasound didn't work. The shockwave technology comes about by blasting the calcification. So that's promising, but you've already got complex patients who are depressed and relationship breakdown by the time you get there. So, hmm, pretty interesting, isn't it? Sounds like we need someone to also do a, um sham sham ultrasound therapeutic ultrasound trial as well joe so is that gonna oh well be... uh, that was my trial that was my trial oh you did okay yeah yeah so the the thing is that when i did the sham you know you, you give patient consent so i set it up so that we had a control group receiving sham ultrasound for 12 sessions so the machine was going to be off then we had um, me providing the intervention over 12 sessions but once the men started reading the consent forms and realized that they might be directed into sham, they were very reluctant to enter the study because why go through all of this? Um, For weeks you know, and weeks. Yeah. And, you know, I, I went back to my supervisors and I said, the guys are super keen to receive the treatment, but they're a bit concerned they'll end up in the, when we randomize them. And they said, well, there's another way we can do this, Joe. We simply do a delayed entry. So we changed it. So we got, the all of the guys to do everything so they had doppler scans they had something called the perennial disease questionnaire we had pelvic floor real-time ultrasound function tests that i designed uh, they weren't allowed to be on any medications uh, we had quite a broad thing there was no other thing they weren't allowed to use a pump or anything whatsoever they then the control group started their um period of time of four to six four weeks without any treatment and then had all of those tests all over again and they were compared to the group that received that and we were able to find clear differences between the two including the peronis disease plaques getting worse in that four to six week time between 
the penile Doppler ultrasound. So the difference between the 1983 studies was we had the advance of technology and we, mm -hmm. we showed true biological data change, which again um, has been extremely pivotal, which is why I've got the paper published really because um, there's, there was nothing from me on that. That was an independent blinded assessor, sonographer and radiologist de determining biological data change that they'd never seen before. Yeah, that is awesome. <laughs> I know. I actually think it's probably the most important <laughs> bit that I did unexpectedly. Um, yeah, it's, it's so motivating because when you get that mum in the sun come in the other day, and by the way, I've discharged him within six weeks. He had three ultrasound sessions and three shock waves and back to normal, completely fine. I've never seen that. That's amazing. Joe. um, I was going to ask about the, um, the penile pump and Cialis and things like that, but I think probably what we might do is direct people to your podcast. Cause I think you okay. and Melissa will just cover all of that in so much more detail than probably what we have time for today. Um, one of the topics that you mentioned wanting to discuss a little bit more was, um, uh, pelvic pain in men. Mm. Um, yep. because again, this is probably something that blokes don't really want to talk about. So, um, pain in the penis, pain in the nut, in the testicles, yep. pain yep. in the perineum. Um, I know in Perth, you're talking about that, the, is it the num numcox, the cycling group? Oh, numcocitis, numcocitis group. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really funny to have a cycling group when they hop on their bikes and go for a cycle, they've all got numb, a numcock and they call themselves numcocitis. And I just think that's not so funny because... <laughs> You know, it means they're having pedendal nerve compression and potentially erectile dysfunction, potentially brain disease. <laughs> mm, mm, yes, yes. Hopefully, hopefully it's more of a support group where they're all going out and getting fantastic yeah, medicine. All they need to do is get a prostate relief health seat. So that really easy. You just get out a bike seat that's got a bit of a wider brim for the SIJ tibial tuberosities and have a cutout middle and then you can cycle your heart away. <laughs> Do, do you want to quickly tell us a little bit about some of the blokes that you see with um, chronic yeah, pelvic sure, pain? And again, I think, you know, you've, you've done such a fantastic job of indicating where some of the early management for people could, could be fantastic from a health yeah. professional point of view. But I'm thinking of our listeners, we've got health and fitness professionals. What yeah. are some of the things that we should be screening for, um, okay. looking out for, and how can we best support men early so they don't get to this chronicity? I think we need to all, like... I'm going to say man up and ask that personal question. Do you have any concerns with your bowel, bladder or sexual function? Yes or no? Have you had anyone screen that then? This could lead to cardiovascular health. So pain in the penis could be because of a tight pelvic floor. It could be because of perineus. If there's noticing any ED, it could be cardiovascular onset. So we need to say, in fact, the International Society of Sexual Medicine just last year for the first time announced and recommended that all health professionals should be screening men for cardiovascular disease by asking about their sexual function. We should all be doing that for the heart. Heart health and heart health are related is one of my phrases. Um, so then we have pain. So... If people have tight hamstrings, tight lower backs, you know, they'll often have things like osteo, osteitis pubis evolving. But if you come up with this, an x-ray or scan that shows, oh, there's no mothball appearance there, uh, well, it's an adductor tendinopathy, could it be that they've actually got a pelvic floor that's a bit tight because they've got L12 ilioinguinal 
um, nerve compression and genital femoral compression, which is then also affecting their, their penile blood flow. Pain, so pain generally is linked up through the work of Peter Donnan to the pudendal nerve um, dysfunction. And only 3% of the time is the nerve entrapped, which needing surgical repair. But the rest of the time, physio is going to really be, you know, the, the option. Um, chronic pelvic pain, numbness, tingling, burning, constipation, like a lot of people, guys who have issues with evacuating their bowel, they might start to get hemorrhoids. Um, as you know, Marika, there's quite a lot of relationship there with the tight pelvic floor. So have their habits changed? So there are questions that we should also ask in that bowel, bladder, sexual, just generally. We don't, we don't all have the expertise to to know, but at least if we ask the question and flag an abnormality, we can then refer on to, you know, pelvic health therapists or doctors or whatever it might be. Urinary, it's just changes. Are you getting up more at night than you were or any pain or increased frequency? There's just, just a little window for us to ask a couple more questions. Yeah, it's uh, so important to have those screening questions. And I found that, um, well, at least for me, by having them on a form, like an intake form can often yeah. start the process um, and even just set the stage, set the tone that, hey, you know, these things are related or even have a conversation with somebody about why these things are related. Like his mm. you know, heart health is, could be heart health related. Uh, yeah. So I'm just going to demystify it and not make it such a precious private, you know, taboo topic. And there's so many things like it's interesting that you mentioned, um, you know, L12. I've, I've noticed recently and obviously referral bias, but um, just during COVID times, since mm. months, really, I've seen a lot more thoracolumbar type yeah. <laughs> presenting in, uh, you know, the upper pelvis, upper glute sort of area. It's, it even has a name. It's main syndrome. Um, yeah, main syndrome. See a lot of that. Yeah, uh, you know, my, myself with my scoliosis, I, I've started for the first time in my life to have, I'm going to share this with everybody, I've had actually started to have some urinary leakage, which is, um, like I because I couldn't teach yoga for four months, because I'd normally teach a few classes a week, four or five, I actually was doing a bit of online stuff, but I was pretty lazy. I was walking my puppy, um, but I wasn't doing my full yoga stretching. My scoliosis actually for the first time in my 49 years, bothered me. And it was because I was sitting down, not doing my yoga, doing a lot of prep and things like that for more hours at a time than I had done previously. A lot to do with being on Zoom and not being able to move, like shifting my body weight, that natural thing, because your face is fixed onto the screen for six hours. And I'd wake up and I'd go, damn, um, I'm really stiff in my back and my sacroiliac joint. So I'd go off to the loo and empty my bladder and then about three seconds later I'd be leaking and there'd be like this post void dribble that my patients get and I think what the hell is that and then I recalled that I'd had a couple more times over the PhD uh, intensive thesis writing phases and it was actually I recalled linked up to my SIJ being a bit more locked up because of my scoliosis and I went and got that x-ray and I went wow, where that curve is at 53 degrees, there's compression at L1, 2 and L2, 3. And so long as I keep my um, yoga and spinal, thoracolumbar spine mobility going, I don't get that. 
urinary leakage. My pelvic floor is pretty good state. So it's actually not that at all. It's the nerve supply to my pelvic floor. And the effects of osteoarthritis as people age and limb length discrepancies and things like that, they're going to have an impact that might not catch up until the fourth, fifth decade plus, plus, plus. So there's a huge musculoskeletal background component here. And that's where, you know, pelvic health physiotherapists shouldn't lose their skills of the whole whole body assessment because it's so pivotal. Um, I've heard of a number of physios recently say they don't, well, they don't want to see musk patients um, in the women's health sector because they specialise in women's health. And I'm like, well, we're missing, we're going to miss. What's so it Carolyn says? It's musculoskeletal in a cave. Yes. <laughs> yes. I've got a sticker here. Orthopedics in a cave. I've got it on my. Right, maybe it was orthopedics in a cave. Uh, I've, you're I've right. got a sticker. I've got a sticker on my um on my laptop. I need to have one of those. Um, and I would direct people to go back and listen to the interview that we did with Carolyn Carolyn Van Dyken because um that was amazing and she also talked about and there was a study I think that she talked about Anthony which took about thoracolumbar or upper lumbar screening and treatment for people with OAB and and having you know treating treating the upper lumbar spine and I don't know 60 70 percent of people getting better yeah. and it's even, like we, even some of my lingering post prostatectomy incontinence patients i just go for the spine if they're not they're not if their pelvic floor looks fantastic and they they're actually coping pretty well i'm, I'm working on their spines to fix their post prostatectomy incontinence mm. yeah fantastic. delayed if it's delayed mm. <laughs> um yes awesome look we've come to that time because we know that you have a time limit and otherwise we would talk for hours and get more and more gems from you. Thank you for sharing everything. It's my job to try and uh, summarize everything. So let me try my best. Um, <clears throat> Before you do, sorry, Anthony, because I have got a couple more minutes. We haven't really mentioned the penis podcast. But... I'll into that. <laughs> oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> I just, yeah, great. I will mention it. I promise. Um, That's okay. It's just only just being released. So it's uh, a little bit tricky to find still. So. I just want to explain that. <laughs> we'll make sure that people find it because we'll have links available for people. Um, so, you know, we started off by talking about some of the things that you were looking at in your PhD and some of the journey is, and your clinical experiences as to why um, you headed down the path that you did and the surprise of the Peroni's disease inclusion in your PhD, some of the mm -hmm. KCP work which led into a randomized controlled trial. Uh, I think some of the takeaways there uh, are things like um, uh, waiting and seeing can actually cause more problems. Um, and your trial showed that there's uh, increase in calcification that's observable um, if you delay it, even the four to six weeks of delay. And then, uh, you know, therapeutic ultrasound at relatively high doses uh, was helpful. And you. Mm about uh, extracorporeal shockwave therapy. I'm pretty sure that's what you were talking about and, um, and how that's helpful as well in preventing progression of that. Uh, you talked about the genetic uh, susceptibility of certain types of genetic predispositions to developing Peyronie's disease and also the disturbing one in six people with a radical prostatectomy, one in 10 people in general population who have uh, Peroni's disease that was pretty shocking as well uh, that's a lot of numbers of people if we just add up the billions around the world uh, yep. 
the lack of awareness about it, the lack of the reluctance really about talking about it, both the urologist and the person who's dealing with it. Um, but also the, the stories of hope, uh, like the boy and his mother, uh, and, you know, being able to be proactive and how in Australia we're doing really well um, and we're exporting this stuff around the world. There's lots of worldwide collaborators we've mentioned throughout the podcast, as well as um, uh, hard health, heart health, being able to use screening questions. Uh, we even ended up on main syndrome as well as thoracolumbar involvement in, uh, uh, in public health conditions as well. And uh, we briefly mentioned and touched on the podcast that you have. See, I knew I'd bring it back in. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Penis project that you have. And um, uh, you sent us a link and we're going to make sure that the link is there. You you can find it in Podbean. Uh, but uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and about uh, who you're doing it with and uh, what it's all about so that people can find out more about you, about your work and about uh, how, to fo- how to contact you if they have any questions because... Oh. The Women's Health Podcast, um, you know, this, uh, you know, everybody's health affects everybody else. You know, we've got to live with each other. And so the more we know just in general about anything, it's going to help with interpersonal relationships. Oh, and that's the bit that I forgot to say. Yeah. So much of your work is truly biopsychosocial because if we're just looking at the issues in the tissues, we're missing so many of the the complexity and the suffering that's going on because um, it's not just the suffering that's occurring through the tissues um, that's there. So did you want to tell us a bit about the... Yeah, well, first of all, I loved your tissues, the issues in the tissues, actually. I might steal that, but I'll quote you. It's... Um, <laughs> it, 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 it's... Or somebody. <laughs> it's the everyday bloke. So the beginning of the, the PhD, all I, all I actually want to do was have a voice for the guys that had a consistent story that weren't really that comfortable um, to share their stories and ask intimate questions. Uh, I have had the fortune of working with thousands of men, more than three and a half thousand men going through prostate cancer. So that means I've got a huge body of work from which to draw inspiration and information. Every single patient I learn something else from. I always say I'm here to listen and learn because I'm a female never ever going to go through what they are and that was really the reason why the podcast series came about uh did did as we mentioned earlier before we started I did have a whole year lined up to go traveling with um the opportunity to share my PhD findings at numerous international conferences which were all of course COVID closed um but then you know because I was a bit quieter in the clinic and I got to work and chat to a little bit more I guess my appointments were just longer I did a lot more zoom but we didn't have to close down here in Perth so I kept a trickle of patients coming through no pun intended um and Melissa Hadley Barrett and I started working together and Melissa and I were having more and more chats as she worked in a room up the corridor from from um, our clinic and I just saw this bubbly person with a little bit of wild curly hair a bit like myself, just having fun with it and the guys relating to her. And then we would, if I was seeing her patient, she would refer them, I would refer them to her. Sorry, we, we were basically realising that if the patients weren't um, sorted 
with their continents even 10 years after she would send them to me and vice versa so we, we had this good thing going and then we just realized that our lingo was getting to the soft spot <laughs> um, what Melissa really wanted to do was engage partners more because she felt that a lot of the burden was being left to to men so she makes a point of having the partners always come to consults I've always tried to do that as well but um, most men are a bit reluctant however Melissa makes it comfortable so Melissa's conversational approach, which if you listen to um, the Focus podcast that we did the other day on the ABC radio, I've sent a link to you guys for that. Um, she's got a broad background in regional health. She's a nurse practitioner, spent 20 years traveling around the country being the gyno, the, the local doctor, the GP, the whatever it might require. Plus she does sexology. She's a sexologist. So uh, we're a good team. We ask the personal questions and we're doing a podcast where we present a man whose story is the forefront of our discussion so we've got willing partners sorry we've got willing participants they all um we've got more than 75 topics we're calling the penis project and all things p in men's health we've got more than 75 topics starting with p to cover so we we thought we might do fortnightly but we're pretty comfortable with doing it once a week because we've got patients in our rooms already who we're linking up with. Um, the first month is all about prostate cancer awareness month. So our first podcast was just interviewing um, another chapter called Bill, who was a younger prostate cancer patient. Next week, we're, well, this week we'll later release one that's about an older patient that uh, went through a bit more of a tricky time. But the object is, it's about a 45 minute chat telling the story of a real man with his real story of his very personal problems dealing with anything P to do with his private parts. It's um, anonymous. The guys are coming up with names that start with P, Paul, Pablo, Picasso, if they want to, or some of them have been happy to share their names. So we want to uh, drop out these podcasts once a week, but also I've already pre-recorded about five little segments, like how to do pelvic floor exercises if you're a bloke, how to you know, scan and self-assess. Melissa's um, gonna do a few of those as well. So we, we're just gonna have a few five minute, you know, little topics here and there that enable um, you, know, you to grab on and, and learn a skill. And I must say, having that blind man the other day was a really helpful thing because I really just taught him yoga, which was feeling, breathing, being familiar with his body parts while we um, taught him a pelvic floor regime. So yeah, the penis project, podcast and all things PN Men's Health is just been launched two days ago and currently on Podbeam but you have to go through a review process with um, the Spotify and as you guys would know and we're almost at the end of that so hopefully next week it'll be everywhere. Fantastic stuff Jo. Um, we really do wish you all the best. It's been fantastic. We have to get you back to talk about all the other things that we haven't touched on today. Uh, it's truly been a pleasure. Uh, if any of you, if anyone wants to get in contact with you, what's the easiest way to find you? Probably just my, um, my email, which is joe at completephysiotherapy.com.au. Or if they want to know anything about the penis project, just, just basically Google that, the penis project dot org and that's where you can subscribe so you simply just um leave your email we don't want anything more than that and we'll shoot you out 
uh, the podcast as we deliver them um, with Melissa and myself. Um, we've got a landing page website there so you can get a bit of info that links both to our website. Melissa's got a really awesome website. I've, I really desperately need to update my website. This is yeah. fantastic. It's, um, yeah, we're breaking down the barriers. We're having the conversation and thank you so much for just continuing it with me. <laughs> Thank you so much, Joe. Um, funnily enough, I know you've got to go, but just very quickly, um, Anthony okay. and I were in a group chat with some colleagues the other day and someone brought up your name and said, oh, my God, Joe Milios is amazing. And we really? <laughs> just that out of the blue really and Anthony and I were just like, yeah, she is, because, you know, you're so generous with your time. Um, I've Every time I speak to you, I learn so much, but I know that your your passion for helping these men just shines through and, I know that, you know, when you were doing your studies, you were just treating patients all like before you came into work on weekends, you know, so much unpaid work that has gone into, um, into all of this. And so just on behalf of everyone, I want to say thank you for, for everything that you've done. And you've, you've always been so keen just to put the information out there and not hold on to any of it and just help help these blokes and i i really admire you for that so thank you oh, thank you and may i just say that one of the reasons i'm so generous is because i got so many doors shut in my face early on and you just need a little crack in the door a little bit of light a little bit of hope and whatever you do you can move forward so thanks guys no thanks, thank Jeff. you and um you know it's it's just, i feel like I'm a very small, but much bigger than you. It's <laughs> a very small opposite, you know, like you're, yeah. you're um, a female physio in a male pelvic health setting. And I'm a, I'm a male physio in a female pelvic health setting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I know what you mean with the doors in the face thing as well. Um, so it's fantastic to hear from you and thank you very much for sharing. And, um, I hope all of you uh, like and enjoyed the podcast. If you'd like to hear more from Joe, please let us know. Uh, we would love to get Joe back on again to talk about all the things that you would love to hear. And please go check out the Penis Project as well as uh, contact Joe and, you know, let her know what you liked or didn't like or any questions that you have. She's a fantastic uh, person and, and resource. And uh, thank you very much for being on the show, Joe. I'm just going to say namaste. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Namaste. Namaste. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode. Be sure to hit like if you enjoyed the episode and leave any comments or questions below. We'd really like to hear from you. If you haven't already hit subscribe, please do so now so that you can be kept notified when we release our next episode. Otherwise, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you back with us for another episode of the Women's Health Podcast. Hey everybody, I just thought uh, we'll add the bonus footage from last year where we only had eight minutes, unfortunately. So enjoy the extras. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Um, Anthony Lowe here and I've got Marika with me as usual, how are you going, Marika? I'm very well, thanks, Anthony. And yourself? Oh yeah, pretty good. Not not too bad. Pretty tired, but it's uh, it's been fun. Um, just on a camp recently with some young adults, so um, they run you ragged, I tell you. Uh, <laughs> it's been good. And we've got with us Joe Milios. How are you, Joe? 
I'm really well, thanks, Anthony. Yeah, awesome. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna stop you right there, Anthony, because that's Dr. Joe. Oh. Dr. Joe Melios, who My has fault. just received her PhD. Massive, <laughs> massive congrats to you, Joe. All those years Thank of you. years of hard, hard work. Yeah, but a fascinating, fascinating experience. It was it was a good way of um, utilizing my free time instead of watching The Bachelorette. Oh god. <laughs> Yeah, valid, valid point. You might be finding your brain expanding rather than shrinking. Hey, Joe, we've um people might be thinking like, you guys run the Women's Health Podcast. Why on earth have you got a men's health specialist coming on? But Anthony and I really wanted to get you because this month is Movember, which I'm going to ask you to just explain what it is. Um, but also because many of our listeners have males in their lives, whether that is a partner or a father or a brother. And we think that, you know, what you've been learning about and teaching about and working very I thought that was an alarm at first. That was just an Australian bird. bird. Right? That's, that's a local magpie. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we think that what you've, what you basically, the area that you're working in and the, and the skill set that you're developing in physios around the globe is, is so important in improving quality of life in men's health. So we wanted to get you for Movember. But for those that don't know, can you explain what Movember is? Yes, yeah, so Movember is basically an international month of awareness for men's health with a focus on prostate cancer, testicular cancer, and mental health in males. And it's actually started in Melbourne in about 1994 with a couple of guys just having a bit of a, a drink one day in the, in the local pub and deciding that they'd grow a moustache and bring back the 70s moustache <coughs> and to then get a bit of attention for it and think, well, maybe we could do something and do a bit of fundraising. So it's a pretty awesome thing that's now spread globally. And um, yeah, <coughs> the message is grow a mo to create awareness and a bit of discussion. Oh, that's, that's awesome. I love seeing the pictures on the internet. Oh, don't worry about the magpie. <laughs> I love seeing my friends just grow these fabulous, I joke that they're porn star moustaches, but you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, they are. Um, so how did you come to work in men's health? Would you mind telling us a little bit about your journey as a physiotherapist? Yeah, so originally um, I was a physiotherapist working in musculoskeletal in private practice. And basically I had, you know, really been enjoying my work for quite a long time. They've decided to visit me. I'm just going to shoo them away. <laughs> Cut one second. <laughs> you guys, go away. How I got into men's health. So basically, um, I was a musculoskeletal physiotherapist for about 15 years and um, quite enjoying all of that, working part-time in a couple of um, clinical locations. And then my brother approached me one day and he happened to be um, recently qualified as a urologist and had spent some time over in the UK. And um, he'd basically come across the new laparoscopic technique for um, removing prostate, for prostate cancer. Um, surgery, which was a lot less invasive. And um, it basically meant that men could have treatment without going through the full um, open technique. That enabled a lot less side effects for them surgically. And he was really keen to involve a little bit of physiotherapy in his um, treatment and rehabilitation. And he sort of um, asked me if I could help. And I was very, very interested and uh, looked into doing some post-grad learning and at the time the women's health course in Western Australia was actually um, not running for a few years and when I looked into it anyway there was not very much if any men's health components so I figured I better just start following my brother around watch him do surgery 
and started just interviewing patients. And for a couple of years, just learnt, learnt from the ground up, really. Wow. It's, um, I'm just thinking, wow, that's a hard route to take, you know, like, because, mm. <laughs> you know, the women's health course wasn't running for you and, and, um, and having to learn from the ground up that way. Um, in what way did you find um, pelvic floor muscle training, um, the way that you observe that it works and, and, um, and I don't know how much women's health experience or you've come across, like what was some of the key things that you learned during that time? Well, uh, basically that first of all, men were very, very unfamiliar with even having a pelvic floor. A lot of them didn't even know they had a prostate, let alone calling it prostrate instead of prostate. So virtually they came in with nil knowledge. They knew that if they had a diagnosis of prostate cancer, that they were going to be cured if they succumbed to this surgery that was going to leave them incontinent and impotent. So generally they were quite distressed. And I found that that psychological impact on men was massive. So I realised that I needed to really simplify the understanding of male anatomy for most of those patients, learn a whole new language really um, that would make men feel comfortable and to not sort of um, over-medicalise things. Also that they were very, very distressed about having internal examinations. So the um, traditional um, pathway for pelvic floor muscle assessment was the digital rectal examination at the time. Um, I had quite a lot of discussion with my brother over this actually and he agreed that um, potentially it might be better for us to look into ultrasound uh, approach of pelvic floor muscle testing. And um, I was very keen to do that myself and leave him to do a lot of the internal testing for the prostatic um, component of diagnosis. And just having men have several internal examinations was quite clearly not something they were typically comfortable with. So we're fortunate to have Dr. Judith Thompson here in Western Australia. So I actually contacted her around 2005, 2006, and she gave me quite a bit of mentoring and teaching um, in the ultrasound approaches. At the time, she was actually doing her own PhD in ultrasound approaches um, of pelvic floor muscle testing in women. So it was really helpful to have her guide me. And then I just spent a lot of time um, searching on the internet and linking with whoever else was doing it. Um, on women because uh, not a lot in men and came across a few, a few people in different patches of um, the world but yeah I, overall it was just starting right from the basics. So you found your tribe Joe. and the <laughs> tribe is growing it's growing. The tribe is growing but men are really not that great at asking for assistance and that's the thing I found that they were actually opening up to me um, I think back to your question, Anthony, about whether or not I had much women's health experience. I, I had a, a few um, colleagues that I was working with that I'd refer my um, female patients to if they came across anything that was a little bit more advanced and out of my scope of experience. But um, generally, I found that men were very open talking to me. And many times they've said comments like, oh, I'm so relieved that you're a female because you know what it's like to have problems down there. You know what it's like to have pads or be wearing, you know, sanitary um, products. 